Welcome back, all you mental maniacs, to episode two of season four of Horror Palooza, the podcast that floats. But then again, we all float down here, Georgie. Ah, we are in the middle of the 31 for 31 Horror Movie Marathon for 2021, and I am Sir Ian Dangerous, a.k.a. your Uncle Frank, and I am watching a horror movie a day for the entire month of October. Now, if you're just joining us, stop and go back and listen to the rest of the shows. But if that's if that's too much to do and you're just happy that you're here now, well, okay, let me explain what the hell it is I'm doing here. I go and watch a horror movie every day in October. I post about it on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous, and then I come here and I talk about all the movies I've watched and let you know if they're worth a look and why or why not. And it's pretty straightforward, and I and hopefully it's a great way to find some some picks you've never seen before, or maybe you've heard of them and wanted to know a bit more before committing your time, or maybe you just like the sonorous sound of my voice, and this is how you fall asleep at night. Whatever the reason, I'm watching everything from oldies to brand new releases, from every subgenre of horror from all over the world, and uh, to help with that diversity. I've given myself some rules to follow to ensure I don't just stay in my discomfort zone. The, the rules are as follows. I can't watch any film that I've seen in the last five years. I have to watch at least three movies from another language besides English, and I can't do the same language more than once. I have to watch at least two films from every decade, from the pre-1940s, to the present, for example, I need to watch two movies from the 40s and before, from the 50s, 60s, etc. I used to do just one per decade, but that just was just getting too easy. So now we're doing two. Uh, if I watch multiple films from the same franchise, it only counts as one movie. They have to be horror movies. This seems like an obvious one, but when I'm going into these movies blind, sometimes I get to the end and I go, huh, that was not a horror movie. And then I can't count it for this marathon. I have to be able to defend it as being a horror movie. I have to be able to come on the show and say, okay, this is why this is a horror movie. Bone Tomahawk was a particularly controversial one where, is it a horror movie? Is it a Western? And we had a big discussion about that. That's an example. We have to be able to defend them as horror movies. And finally, new for this year, I have to watch at least five movies that have female directors. That's my, that's my 2021 challenge. I have to watch at least five female-directed horror movies. And so far, I've watched seven movies. And if you want to hear about those, I covered them all in episode one. But as of right now, I've watched two modern movies from the 2020s. I've watched a movie from the 60s, one from the 70s, one from the 80s, two from the 2010s. Uh, I have yet to crack open any foreign films or women-directed films, and I'm missing a bunch of decades, so I'm a bit behind. Will I catch up? Find out today. Uh, and uh, let's see, speaking of women-directed films, I'm actually going to give a list of a bunch of great ones to check out at the end of the show today, so stick around. But uh, first, go follow me on Instagram, at Dangerous. Follow me on Twitter, at SkinlessWonder, or at Dangerous. And you can actually check out my musical contributors, the Tiki Creeps, at tikicreeps.com, and my sound designer, 414Beg, on Instagram, at 414Beg, or you can get his new album, Violence. It's out now on all platforms. That's the number 414BEG on all platforms. Uh, and of course, share this show with all of your horror-loving friends and enemies. Leave a review, subscribe, all that good stuff. And here we go with this week's 
movies. Starting off, movie number eight for this year from 2008. You can currently watch it on Amazon Prime. It is The Ruins. And I started off this week with a kind of a nasty little number. It's a bit of it's a, it's it's pretty nasty. It's Carter Smith's The Ruins, based on the book by Scott Smith, who actually also wrote the screenplay. And it's it's one that I skipped over at the time of its release due to the fact that it looked like another attractive American teens get into wacky trouble in country full of brown people type movie. And I was I'm really dismissive of that these days. And well, I wasn't totally wrong. It is totally exactly that. But what what sets it apart for the most part is that it's far more vicious and goes to grislier places than a lot of the teen fare at the time. And unlike a lot of that like PG-13 type fare at the time, this, this was a hard R for violence. And the body horror and gore does not flinch at fucking all. <laughs> sure. I mean, sure enough, you've got the cute derpy teens out for a rollicking drunken good time in a foreign country where, to their credit in this movie, they don't really act like completely disrespectful assholes, but they definitely are clueless tourists at best. Uh, and to the movie's discredit, there isn't really a native of the country in this film that isn't treated like either a disposable narrative device or a great other, someone opposed to our protagonist and acting like an asshole to them in their civilized white ways. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I mean, I'm probably making a bigger deal out of this than it really is, but I, I noticed it to be there that you didn't have, uh, really anything other than someone who was just an opposing force. Uh, they, they, they didn't really, they didn't have a name. They didn't have any kind of identity other than they are the great other. Uh, and to be, here's the thing, to be fair, our protagonists have no clue what they're dealing with as they take an ill-advised day trip to some ancient Mayan ruins out deep in the jungle. Ruins which, I might add, are neither that deep in the jungle nor that inaccessible. And given what happens, you would think the locals who end up getting pissed off at them would have this shit on absolute lockdown. Uh... But they, they don't, and the kids are able to approach the ruins, and then the villagers swarm them and trap them on top of this old pyramid. And there is a logic that like we find out why the villagers act the way they do, but again, given the severity with which they take this and the legitimate danger, I, I couldn't help but think that they were partly to blame for letting anyone get close to this shit. Like, why aren't you defending this better? Why, have, why don't you have this on lockdown, y'all? Uh, and without spoiling what's really going on, I will say that this could have been a really goofy concept once you find out what's really going on. And there are a couple of moments that get close to being spit-take funny. But luckily, the savagery that the Smiths conjure up with how, they're starting, with like how they start to destroy these teens is truly impressive. It's gross, it's squirm-inducing, it's horrifying. And I did love the inventiveness. But sadly, the movie ends on a tragically flaccid note. It really wet farts what could have been a, a dark, twisted finish, and it just turns it into something that just kind of ends. But apparently, there is an alter... I watched, I, I watched this on streaming. I watched this on Amazon. Apparently, if you get the Blu-ray, there is an alternate ending that test audiences didn't like where what should have happened at the end actually happened. So they did film... What when we got to the end, I was oh, I wish they'd done this. They filmed exactly that, and once again, this proves that nothing is more detrimental to te than test audiences to an artistic endeavor. And I, I've told by several of my friends in the industry that this is not so, and that sometimes 
even often, test audiences can and have saved movies we now think of as classics and brilliant, so I will defer to their judgment. But in a case like this, the testers definitely screwed the pooch. Uh, regardless, I was pleasantly surprised by the ruins, given my predisposition to it. Uh, if you like unflinching body horror and hopeless situations and attractive teens getting ruined, huh? Huh? Uh, the Ruins is, sorry, <laughs> The Ruins is a worthwhile watch. Just, just don't think too hard about the social implications or the depictions of Mexicans, and you'll, you'll be fine. It's, it's, it, it is actually a pretty decent movie. Uh, and then next up, the ninth movie this year, The Being from 1983, also uh, on Amazon. This one's a rental, though. You have to rent it for a whole 99 cents, uh, which it, is, is about right. Uh, it starts off with a voiceover describing the setup of this movie, and that alone will leave you howling. The Being is the kind of movie that you watch with the full awareness that you are not going to be impressed by anything but how awful it is. This is MST3K levels of bad, but much like the movies skewered on that show, there is a lot of fun to be found here, and a lot of it actually seems intentional. The Being is just an 80s version of a 50s or 60s schlock B-movie, and it seems very aware of its own terrible nature. Radioactive monsters are terrorizing a small town that recently acquired a nuclear waste dump, and the scientists all say there's no connection. Luckily, there's a strong-willed local sheriff who's willing to stand up to the authorities and get to the bottom of this mess. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, written and directed by Jackie Kong, who was a recent film graduate living in L.A., and financed by her husband, Bill Osco, who is more famous for having produced sexploitation movies like Flesh Gordon. Uh, the Being looks like it was cast with gaffers instead of actors and shot by someone with a passing knowledge of film just without any of the technical skill to really pull it off. Uh, Osco also stars as the sheriff, and he is a worse actor than he is a producer, which leads to some absolutely amazingly awful line readings and reaction shots. But due to some moxie on, on Kong's part, Martin Landau is actually in this movie as the scientist, and he was apparently involved because Jackie went to his acting class and gave him her script and told him he had to be in her movie. And he was so impressed by this that he did it as a favor. Also, uh, he didn't have a ton going on at this point in his career, but that's neither here nor there. Look, Landau is a lot of fun. He's hamming it up. He's playing the tone, though it really unfortunately shows how amateur the rest of the cast is when they're in a scene with him. I except, you know, there's, you have a few other notables like uh, Oscar Award winner Jose Ferrer is the mayor. Uh, how they got him is anyone's guess. Um, Kong knows what she has, though. She often cuts to their reactions, even when it's not necessary, and lingers on them longer than you normally would, either to appeal to their acting egos or because they're the best things in the movie. Uh, Ruth Buzzy, a, a woman with so many fillings in her mouth, she must have sent all of her dentist's kids to college. She, she shows up as the mayor's wife, along with her real-life husband, Kent Perkins, as the deputy. Uh, and she's a hoot in the few scenes she has. Uh, though I, I still prefer her work with Dom DeLuise uh, as Shakuntala. And uh, Dorothy Malone, tarnished scarlet of the 50s and 60s, she shows up in a completely thankless role uh, at the back end of her career. But 
the real fun in watching the being is in the just campy, bad, ridiculous moments scattered all over the film. The, the, the dream sequence, complete with water dissolve, is a standout, along with the incomprehensibly staged, incompetently shot, quote, final confrontation action scene at the, quote, climax of the movie. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the monster itself, including how it is shot and handled, is a, a total dud. It, it looks pretty cool from what we can tell, and there are a couple hilarious kills that, while nonsensical in, in terms of how they're portrayed, have the decency to wink a bit at the camera and be gory enough to crack you up. And it's, it's very much a movie where you yell at the screen, instructions to the characters, exclamations of disbelief, or just a big old what the fuck, uh, especially when it comes to Roxanne Cybelle, inarguably the greatest child actor of all time who has one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, hunting Easter eggs near a monster nest. You have to see it to believe it. It's pretty wonderful. Uh, Jackie Kong obviously had a lot of fun making this movie, and it's evident in some of the self-aware comedy moments, the end credit character fates, for example, which skewer the movie itself as well as the film business, the energy of the film itself, which it rarely drags, but it just often doesn't know how to accomplish what it's trying to do. But it's worth a watch for those looking for a terrible in a good way schlock fest, anyone who wants to try their hand at MST3Kng this with their friends and a few drinks, uh, or just the curious, it's it's worth a look. Uh, next on my list, I had Gonjam, Haunted Asylum, recommended to me uh, last year by Alok Mishra, producer of One BR. Uh, he said he loved this one, so I thought I would check it out. It's from 2018. You can find it right now on Shutter and Tubi. Uh, it's not quite as fun and lighthearted as, uh, as The Being. It's a found footage movie from South Korea about a group of online haunted locale investigators who decide to investigate the very real, in real life, very abandoned Gonjam Asylum in Gwangju. And of course, they get more than they bargain for because this is a horror movie. It is not the most original or unpredictable of concepts, or, or movies for that matter, but it, it does succeed in its intent, which is to reveal the real motives of the various participants in the investigation and make you wonder how much of it is real, how much is set up by the group's less than morally pure leader. There's actually a story going on here beyond just, we're going into a creepy place, scares are going to happen. There is actually character development that you become intrigued with as the movie goes on. But for me, someone who is admittedly not a big found footage movie guy, I was kind of dragging for most of this movie. I was waiting for things to really pop off and get going. And there, there are a lot of good old-fashioned found footage creepy moments, and there are some good jump scares, but nothing really blew my mind or chilled me uh, until late in the movie, late, way late in the movie. Although I have heard from other people who watched it that it just wrecked them the entire time. So take my opinion with a grain of salt. What scares one person may have no effect on another and vice versa. Welcome to the subjective nature of horror. Uh, and this, this film was a big success in Korea, huge success in Korea, becoming one of the top grossing homegrown films of all time there. And I suspect this is because of the relatability of the cast. For a bunch of actors who look and sound very similar, once all their gear is on, and they basically just become eyes and mouths, it was up to the performances to differentiate the characters. And they, they end up accomplishing this. 
So it becomes, it becomes pretty easy to tell who's who by their reactions and their demeanor. Uh, it is still rife with the typical found footage problems of disorienting cuts, different locations and perspectives. So often you have to reorient yourself as to who is where and, and doing what and why. And of course, there's the pervasive shaky cam and the fact that they explain why there are cameras freaking everywhere doesn't help that because by having cameras everywhere, it makes it more confusing as to where we are at any given time because they can just cut to anywhere and we're like, wait, where are we now? Where are we now? And you know, putting up little markers saying, now we're on the fourth floor, now on the first floor. It doesn't help that much. It doesn't help enough to me. But the, again, the meat of the movie is once things go off the rails because they do go off the rails and wonderfully so. I wish there was more of this crazy shit, but sadly, I, I guess they didn't want to overplay the insanity so that the climax could really have punch and feel special. And it does. It's bonkers. And it has some standout visual moments that are that should be iconic, and, and they're terrifying. The less I say, the better, so that you know, if you want to watch it, you can all experience the element of surprise as I did, because that is the biggest strength of this movie. That's that surprise, that shock, that holy shit, what am I looking at? Uh, but bottom line, Ganjam is a solid found footage haunting film, if you like that kind of thing. And that's about it. It's not much more. Uh, for me, the whole thing had its moments, but overall, it was, it was just okay. It was fine. It was fine. Uh, the 11th day, however, brought me to Howl of the Devil, uh, which made Ganjam look like Schindler's List. It, it, oh, Paul, uh, Paul Nashi. Uh, he's called the Spanish Lon Chaney because he played so many different monsters in his time as an actor, director, producer, writer, all around Spanish genre legend. But to be fair to Chaney, Lon and Junior originated the looks and depictions of so many of these creatures themselves, and Nashi borrows heavily from those designs and portrayals. Uh, in Howl of the Devil from 1987, it's a later-era Nashi film, he plays versions of Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, although he, he does play his version that he, he, that he did in, uh, in Spain, Count Valdemar, uh, and Cheney's Larry Talbot is actually mentioned as a way of saying, no, no, this is, this is Nashi's Wolfman. Uh, he also plays in this movie Rasputin, Dr. Fu Manchu, uh, complete with yellow pancake makeup. Aye. Uh, Phantom of the Opera, Mr. Hyde, Quasimodo. And then there are two other actors in this movie who play the worst Michael Myers and Leatherface wannabes you've ever seen. Uh, and as far as like genre love, this film opens with a quote. He says, I offer this film as a modest homage to Lon Chaney, Boris Karloff, uh, who actually, apparently, Nashi famously saw Cry on set, and it really inspired him. Apparently, at one point, he saw, he saw Boris um, have a breakdown on a set one time that Nashi was on as well. Uh, uh, Bella Lugosi, Jack Pierce, and all those who, with their talents, created Universal Studios and the enduring, or in, I don't know if you meant enduring or endearing, uh, myths that will live forever in the hearts of the lovers of the cinema of the fantastic. Nice, nice little quote at the beginning of this. Uh, he does... Uh, put this over a woman who 30 seconds earlier is smoking and counting money in a car and then she has her throat slit you know, while this quote is going on and these opening credits roll over her bleeding body. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, it's quite a juxtaposition. Uh, one could take Howl of the Devil as a, 
like a late career self-homage by Nashi. It's about a, a failed actor named Hector living in the shadow of his far more successful brother. They're both played by Nashi. They both have elements of his career in their backstory. Uh, and the movie's about how Hector spends his time playing these weird dress-up sex games with local prostitutes. Uh, he hits on his uninterested maid, played by ex-Bond girl and hammer horror vet Carolyn Monroe, still gorgeous in 87. Uh, and he ignores his odd daydreaming son, played by Nashi's own son. But it, it does play, to me, more as kind of a masturbatory self-congratulation piece, which really only hardcore fans of Nashi are going to truly appreciate. You, you have to be, actually, you have to be an acolyte, I would say, of Nashi to give a crap if he's going to dress up as any of these given monsters, largely because he does so little with any of them. Either he's playing Hector, playing dress-up to weirdly sex-torture whatever woman is unlucky enough to be left alone with him, or the more fantastical monsters are literally daydreams of his son. They show up for a moment, and then they quickly disappear. And it must have been a lot of work for very little payoff. And the only real payoff is Nashi getting to brag that he's the only man alive to have played, in the lucid sense, all of these classic film characters. It's, it's worth it as a curiosity for the average horror fan, but not much beyond that. And, and Nashi's ego trip does not stop there. But besides the back-patting metaphor of the actor brothers, he also makes sure to include a scene of himself lifting weights. Uh, he was a bodybuilder as a young man. He, he fixes certain, he stages certain scenes to hide his less than Karloff-like stature. And he makes sure to have the women in the film find him attractive. Even if they rebuff his advances at first, they, all, they pretty much all end up betting him by the end. Even if he could be verbally, physically abusive to them. In one case, he drugs and tortures one of them. And she's still like, well, that was very unpleasant of him, but he is still hot. It's, I mean, look, actually, you know, in fact, the misanthropy may be the most off-putting aspect of this film. None of the women have many, if any, redeeming qualities. M Monroe is the closest to it, and she has to work to make us empathize with her. I mean, luckily, she has some tender scenes with the kid. Otherwise, she'd just be another fallen woman with no convictions, unable to even leave her abusive employer or avoid the murderously jealous priest who she dumped. Uh, she, the movie even has a number of unchallenged lines to the tune of women are to blame for everything. And often, it makes it clear that Nashi isn't exactly saying that that's wrong. He just leaves them hang, and it's like, oh, okay, all right. I, I mean, he look, he does love his beautiful women as a director, and he makes sure to luridly off them one after another in as many different violent ways as possible. For gorehounds, this movie is definitely worth a look as some of the deaths are pretty grisly. And I would be surprised if Nashi wasn't looking at the kills in Fulci and Argento for inspiration. Uh, but the, fi the final moments of this film are utterly nonsensical. But to his credit, they also possess the best makeup and effects and are definitely the most horrifying visually. Uh, there is nothing like live worms on a zombie mask to make the effect, is what I say. Uh, but the movie overall is just for Euro-trash completionists and Paul Nashi diehards only. It's far from his best work. It's got, a, it's, oh, it's got an awful dub where the multilingual cast, I mean, Nashi speaks Spanish, Monroe is speaking English, 
Uh, oh, and genre character actor extraordinaire Howard Vernon is here. He speaks several different languages. All of them are dubbed again in Spanish without... I mean, Na even Nashi's words in Spanish don't line up with his lips in many scenes. Uh, and, and then, of course, the plot is like beyond ludicrous to the point of being meandering and repetitive. So, you know, check it out at your own risk. Or if you're just morbidly curious about what cinematic self fellatio looks like, howl of the devil, uh, go in with a warning. Uh, but that brought me to, to the 12th movie uh, to overall, Curse of the Undead from 1959. It's a, it's a bit of a palate cleanse. This movie is something I hadn't seen before. Uh, it is a black and white Western vampire movie. It was made in the era where Westerns, when it was when Westerns were king and not much was really going on in the vampire genre right now at this point in, in America. And for that reason, this movie runs as more of a typical 50s Western than anything else. It follows the tropes of that genre at the time uh, more than anything like an old Universal Monster movie. Uh, you've got the farmers having a beef with the local strongman who's encroaching on their land. You've got the heroic ex-gunslinger preacher who's just trying to keep the peace with his friends, the unassuming sheriff and the steely caring doctor. And then, of course, you have the man in black, the out-of-town mercenary who rides in one day as the town faces a sudden epidemic of sickness and a bunch of bitten necks. And you can kind of guess who the man in black is. Now, Michael Pate, who plays the man in black, is freaking awesome in this movie. He is slinky, he is cool, he is wicked, he's sensual, he's, got a, uh, he's a great analog for a Dracula type. And it, frankly, it's a damn shame he's the bad guy because he is way cooler in this movie than the lantern-jawed, Liam Neeson-esque, pure-hearted preacher played by Eric Fleming who is no slouch in the cool department, but he's just out-cooled by a country mile here. Now, Fleming would go on to easily hold the screen next to a young Clint Eastwood in Rawhide before he ended up dying too young in a boating accident while filming another film called High Jungle. And Pate, on the other hand, would go on to amass a huge film and TV resume. He often was playing Native Americans, sometimes opposite John Wayne even, and he ended up uh, writing and producing even. One of the scripts he wrote was for Rawhide. And you can't tell in any of his American performances, except for the four that, where he used his native accent, that Pate was actually Australian. So you have some great top-line cast. The female lead played by Kathleen Crowley, herself an accomplished actress with a ton of credits, including Target Earth and being one of James Garner's favorite actresses to work with on Maverick. She is no slouch. And then you, you set them all down and you let them share screen time. And to help the actors, there's this nice snappy dialogue, which it's not exactly Sorkin, but it's pretty peppy for the time. Although I got to say, the line, bartender's like a free gal, she's bait for whoever's got a free buck, made me, as a bartender myself, a little salty at the character who uttered it. Fuck did you say, Sheriff? The fuck did you say? Oh, you son of a bitch. While this, now look, okay. <clears throat> While this movie is pretty by the numbers and there's not a lot of surprises, it's all executed in a fairly satisfying manner. Secrets are uncovered that explain some of the strange actions characters have in the early goings. Some surprise character deaths keep things lively. And ultimately, the movie doesn't slow down really until the end credits. It's very much of its, of its time, of course, so when I talk about its pacing, I'm talking relative to what the other movies I've seen of the time. 
Uh, and also the acting is very mannered. The directing is a bit stiff. And the, the special effects, so to speak, are, uh, are pretty lame. <laughs> the, neck, the neck bites, for instance, look like they were drawn on in red Sharpie or, or, or using nail polish. Um, but, but it is a cool early genre mashup. And one that takes more classical vampire lore as opposed to the mainstream Stoker interpretation. Uh, vampirism here is a curse of faithlessness and sin as opposed to some sort of transmissible disease. And thankfully for the typically sun-drenched Western style, they can walk around in sunlight. So it's interesting to see these tropes turned on their heads a bit. And overall, the movie is a very breezy, easy watch. It's a good one to put on if you're in the mood for an old black and white monster movie, but are burned out on the Universal Pictures. And then next, on the 13th day of October, I watched Eden Lake from 2009. It's currently playing on Tubi, Plex, and Canopy, and I don't believe I said so, but I think Curse of the Undead is on Tubi as well. Uh, Tubi has a ton of stuff right now. You have to watch some commercials, but it's got a ton of horror. So check out Tubi for that. But Eden Lake is on there as well. And this was a nasty little piece that went a lot harder than I was expecting. Uh, what was I expecting? Well, uh, I like to go into horror movies as blind as possible. But in this case, I saw the cover art, which was actress Kelly Riley hiding behind a tree from shadowy figures in the background. So I expected beautiful young woman chased by mean people. Uh, I also saw Michael Fassbender's name on the poster as well, so I frankly expected him to be the lead villain. Turns out he plays Riley's boyfriend, uh, uh, a lovely chap who just wants to take his lady out to the lake in the country before it's turned into upscale housing, and he wants to propose to her there. This was before Fassbender was the star he is today, though, so ultimately it is Riley's movie, as is made clear once the plot starts to unfold. You see, the area they want to go to, the lake, Eden Lake, it's not in the best part of England. It's made clear to us via the radio en route and a few choice encounters before they get to Eden Lake that the local peasantry are not exactly the most savory of people. They smack their kids, they curse a lot, they talk loudly, drunken. They're generally churlish, loudish, and most uncivilized. Uh, plus, there's a gang of local teens that hang out at the lake next to Mike and Kelly that are pretty obnoxious. They play loud music, they act like assholes. Uh, they're verbally abusive when confronted. And the movie from this point is an experience in escalation. Over the course of the next couple days, things go from saying mean things to each other to the couple and the groups of kids literally trying to kill each other. And if that seems like a huge jump, well, the movie is successful in making that jump understandable, if not entirely believable. Uh, but this is in large part because of the performance of the main teen baddie, played by Jack O'Connell, who himself was apparently a bit of a delinquent before eventually cleaning up his act and getting his life back on track when he played the lead in Angelina Jolie's directing debut, Unbroken. So he's now on a good track, and his career seems to be going places. But back in 2009, he was still remarkably well cast to play a hoodie, which at the time was a British colloquialism for a young ruffian. And that's being... Nice. He is an absolute monster in this movie. He's brutal, destructive, he's vicious, amoral, and he's violent in sudden outbursts that are terrifying to watch. It's an incredibly muscular and nuanced performance, the best one in the film, 
and it makes his character more than just a one-note antagonist. When you're staring into his black, dead eyes, that's the movie's ace in the hole. And it's in the tatters of humanity that linger around the edges of his expression that let us know that there's more going on with him under the surface. But sadly, this movie suffers from what seems to be a fairly pointed social message and one that is controversial to say the least. Uh, Upon its release, it was lambasted for portraying the working class English as barbaric and barely human, uh, a group of people unfit to share a society with as they were too far gone to be saved. The civilized classes couldn't even have a proper conversation with them anymore. And Eden Lake seems to say that the problem isn't just momentary, it's institutional, generational, and unstoppable. Now, (laughs) obviously, this is reductionist and classist, to say the least. And while there's a storied history of American horror using the backwards rednecks as blanket adversaries to the city folk that stumble into their primitive midst, Eden Lake makes it clear that this is not as separate a scenario as those. The the couple isn't going out into the wilderness per, per se, at least not like Hills Have Eyes or Deliverance or Hatchet or Wrong Turn or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, etc., Uh, Though maybe what it's saying is that to Londoners, the rural neighborhoods of the British countryside may seem as intimidating as the deep woods of Appalachia or the dusty hills of New Mexico. Whatever the reasoning, Eden Lake makes you utterly hate these savage poor kids and their blue-collar families. And it seemed a bit unnerving to be rooting against these socioeconomic underdogs even as they have the overwhelming physical odds in their favor. But the, the kids give you good reason to hate them, as do their, their families. I was, I was not ready for how hard this film was willing to go. And I, I think writer-director James Watkins watched a lot of New French Extremity before making this film, as it does share a lot of themes and intensity with those films, not to mention the level of degradation and brutality. The humanization of the kids is the saving grace. Some are even sympathetic. But the movie overall is a grinding, savage, harrowing journey. And even when you think it's done with you, you are back staring into those cold, dead eyes again, and you realize it's going to stick with you for a long while. This is a rough, rough film. you got to like hard films to like Eden Lake. Uh, and then on the 14th day, the final movie of this week. The Night House from 2020. Uh, you have to rent it still. It's still fairly new. It's on Amazon, Google, YouTube, etc. Uh, it's complete 180. <laughs> I, I watched... Uh, uh, it's David Bruckner's follow-up to The Ritual. Uh, I love The Ritual. I was very excited for what he was going to do next, and it turns out that he wanted to do something very, very different. The Night House is a movie about trauma and grief, exemplified in its main character, Beth, played by Rebecca Hall, you may have seen in Godzilla vs. Kong or The Awakening or Transcendence. I don't know if we've ever seen her given a role this meaty, though. Uh, even in Vicky Christie Barcelona, Vicky Christina Barcelona, excuse me, the town, um, Christine, I, don't, I think this might be her best role yet. But uh, Beth's husband has just gone out to the lake behind the couple's gorgeous house, which he built, and he shot himself. In the head, and the movie starts immediately after the funeral and goes from there with strange bumps in the night and odd occurrences becoming so, so much more than just that over the course of the film. So Hall plays Beth as a fully 
three-dimensional character. Uh, they say that in periods of extreme stress, someone's real feelings come out more, and Hall, as Beth, expresses so many different shades of emotion over the runtime simultaneously that it is jaw-dropping. She is acerbic, funny, sad, heartbreaking, frustrating, terrifying, relatable, all, all at the same time, and it's, it's a tightrope walking performance that centers the entire damn movie. Um, there are some pretty neat optical and visual effects in the film, but nothing is more captivating than Hall's performance. It is the reason to see the movie. And sadly, I can't say the same for the plot or the scares or the resolution of it all. I, I, I won't give anything away here, but the movie, it kind of tips over into silliness at the end. And not because of the premise, which I would argue could have worked, but because the execution just doesn't quite land. I feel like they did end with a strong metaphor, although a fairly on-the-nose one, and it could be a good double feature with The Babadook, as they both have a very similar theses and conclusions, but the way the plot is revealed in the third act is tragically more heavy-handed than the first. The movie opens so ambiguously, with information being doled out in lumps of dialogue without blatant exposition. It makes it feel like we are really experiencing a post-tragedy life as opposed to having the plot and setup shoved down our throats. And discovering the details of the scenario as opposed to being told it is intriguing and refreshing. And Hall is so captivating that we're invested in whatever she does next. Her magnetism leads to one of the film's great jump scares where we're lulled by her performance until we're, uh, we're unprepared for this massive sting and this dizzying revelation of a time and space shift that is wildly unsettling. It's awesome. And, and the pace of the first half to two-thirds of the film is so even that moments like those stand out, along with a few other notable cre creepy moments. Like, it's, it, the first two-thirds of the film are fantastic. But the third act devolves into arbitrary plot devices and expositional monologues before finally succumbing to what should have been a terrifying reveal which ends up falling a bit flat. And it's not the great reveal we were hoping for or that could have been done. It's just okay. And sadly, the film never recovers, and all we're left with is what could have been. And also, the ultimate point of the film, which I feel is delivered, is softened as a result of how it's played. Uh, the Night House is a very good movie, but it could have been a great movie. But the reason to see it is for Rebecca Hall, flat out, no bones about it. She alone is worth the price of admission. The spooky mirror imagery and the negative space ghosties are, are tasty appetizers, but Rebecca Hall is the main course. Nothing is not better than Rebecca Hall, wink, wink. Also, the house is really, really, really nice too. Uh, it's located actually for real on, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Skanidalee's Lake near Syracuse in New York, where uh, whoever really lives there is, is lucky as hell. But it is, look, this movie is worth a look. It's just, I didn't love it as much as some of the critics did, <laughs> I guess. Uh, I feel like it fell apart at the end. But that is it for week two of the 31 for 31 horror movie marathon. So far, I've watched 14 movies, and that means by my math and the math of every first grader practicing arithmetic that I have 17 films to go. But uh, I've been kind of slow on my rules. I'm, uh, I, I have to watch two films from every decade, three foreign language films, five films directed by women this year. So far, I've watched two 
of my three foreign language films with the uh, Korean Ganjim Haunted Asylum, the Spanish Howl of the Devil, but only one of my five female-directed films with Jackie Kong's The Being. I've got uh, some holes to fill in the decades, too. I've got to watch two films still from the 1940s and before. I've got to watch one from the 50s, one from the 60s, one from the 70s, and two from the 90s. Oh, so plenty of work left to do, so I guess you better come back and see what's next. But before then, I wanted to actually give some suggestions for some female-directed horror movies that you may have missed. You see, women have been directing horror movies since the early days of cinema, all the way back to the beginning, including films such as Faust at Metastopheles uh, from 1903, directed by Alice Guy Blachet, the first woman to ever direct a film, and a, a just flat-out pioneering figure in film as a whole. She directed over a thousand films at the dawn of, of film, and she was an influence on literally everyone, although Hitchcock specifically said that she was a direct influence. Uh, and then also another early movie, the thriller Suspense from 1913, directed by Lois Weber, featuring a very young Lon Chaney in an uncredited role. It's also the first film to use split screen as a technique to show simultaneous action. It's something that uh, De Palma actually would become famous for in, in Carrie. Uh, and both of those women ran their own studios. But overall, for the first mm, 60, 70 years of film, women were not behind cameras very much. And they still are a minority among directors. And only one woman has ever won an Academy Award for Best Director. And that woman's name is Catherine Bigelow. And her first movie was the classic vampire mashup horror movie, Near Dark. Um, so here's the thing. As horror movies can express the taboo, the transgressive, and the monstrous in ways that other forms of cinema can't, as a way to comprehend and categorize such things in our consciousnesses in a way that we couldn't otherwise, so can they also be a catharsis for expression that is otherwise unable to be communicated in society, whether it's due to oppression, fear of repercussion, or cultural repression. And over the years since horror became more of a codified genre with its own tropes and catechisms, it's also become more available to various voices and points of view to interpret those structures. Groups in the minority of power came late to film as a whole, but women came to horror fairly early as a voice, even though that voice was, in the early days, often mimicking or only subtly tweaking the male voices that came before. And arguably, women in horror didn't really find ways to express their own experiences until the 90s. And even then, we didn't see an explosion of really subjective material until the late aughts and teens. And it's very, still much, very a, a growing force in horror the way it is in all film. But in the visceral way that horror films can utilize their unique perspectives to discuss and demonstrate aspects of a subject that are often hidden or forbidden, the genre is still at the forefront in creating new flashpoints in the cultural discussion of what it is to be a woman in this world and what that experience is. Now, obviously, this isn't really my lecture to give. I'm a straight white dude sitting in a nice apartment in Los Angeles with a well-fed dog. I have a pretty decent life, all things considered. So really all I can do uh, in my position in society is act as an observer to these lived experiences and interpret as best I can. But here's the thing. The point of creating art is to cause a reaction, preferably emotional, in any given subject. Fundamentally, you want this emotion to elicit a change within the subject. If that's been achieved, then you are on some level successful. But you need a subject 
to do this, this alchemy. So I am myself a subject who is open to receiving a reaction from the art created by a given artist. In this case, that artist would be specifically a woman making a genre film. This applies to anyone, any artist. Uh, you can specify what descriptor you want to give to define what specific experience you want to interpret, but I'm saying for the sake of this segment that I'm looking at specifically women in the horror film genre. And I'm doing my best to honor the art that they're creating by trying to understand what they're trying to express. Uh, that's the minimum <laughs> that I can do. Obviously, there have become many social groups to listen to, and I'm, I'm cherry-picking here, but we got to start somewhere, so I'm starting here. So, in that spirit, I wanted to give some standout early examples of female-directed horror movies so that you two can go out and be subjects and listen to these voices and see the path that we've trod to get where we are today. Um, and I'm also going to throw in some modern standouts as well. I, I don't have the streaming info for all of these right now, sadly, but if you're interested in one or if it piques your interest, you can actually just go to justwatch.com and look up any of these movies to find out if and where it's available. And that's across all platforms, searchable by country. If you're, if you're not in the USA, you can also find out where it's streaming in your country. So uh, my list begins in 1966 with Bloodbath and Track of the Vampire, arguably the first... Uh, modern female-directed horror movies. Uh, Steph Stephanie Rothman, with uh, assistance from Jack Hill, uh, directed these. But then if you want her solo, you have to go to 1971 for The Velvet Vampire, um, for Stephanie Rothman directing solo. And then the 70s, you start seeing more and more of the, of the women-directed horror movies. Blood Sabbath by Brianne Murphy came along in 1972. And Messiah of Evil, which I covered on this show, uh, it was uh, co-directed by Gloria Katz with her husband, Willard Hoyk. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's fun to say Hoik, so I'm going to call it that. Uh, the Mafu Cage, which is a seminal movie by Karen Arthur in 1978, came along. House of the Dead by Sharon Miller in 1978 as well. And then in 1980, The Godsend by Gabrielle Beaumont. Uh, also in 1980, Barbara Peters directed Humanoids from the Deep. And that's an interesting case study because there you had a female director who was given agency on a film uh, to... to do what she wanted by Roger Corman, the producer. But then when the movie that she turned in was more about social commentary, he took it and put in a whole bunch more violence and sex. <laughs> and basically, although her movies, her name's on the movie along with Jimmy T. Murakami, uh, it, it, she, didn't, she actually ended up rejecting the film after it came out. Uh, in 82, Slumber Party Massacre by Amy Holden Jones. Uh, interestingly enough, first written as... Uh, a play on the slasher genre and then taken by producers and made into a literal slasher film. Luckily, Amy Holden Jones knew what she was doing and keeps enough winking at the camera so that you know that she knows that she is in some ways skewering the slasher genre. Even though the movie itself is exploitative, uh, she always argued that, yes, I'm undermining this genre by playing in the same sandbox as the men. You can't criticize me without criticizing the men in the same way. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting case study there. Uh, also, Slumber Party Massacre 2 came along in 87 by Deborah Brock. The remake in 2012 of Slumber Party Massacre was by Rebecca Cheney. So a long history of female-directed Slumber Party Massacres. <laughs> uh, also, actually, uh, somewhat related, Sorority House Massacre from 1986, directed by Claire Frank, and the second one directed by Sally Madison in 1990. So sort of a, a, a kissing cousin, if you will, uh, in the Massacre films, Sorority House Massacre, also directed by women. Uh, I mentioned The Being uh, from 1982, directed by Jackie Kong. She also did Blood Diner, a far better film in 1987. 
1985, Roberta Finlay, who was a big voice for, for women's films in the 80s, she did Tenement she, and, and, and The Oracle in 1985, Blood Sisters in 87, Home Sweet Home in 88, Prime Evil in 1988 as well. Lots of content from her in the late 80s. A lot of those are worth checking out as well. And then in 87, we had Catherine Bigelow come along with Near Dark, and things started to pick up. Deadly Dream came in 1988 from Christine Peterson, who also did Critters 3 in 1991. And Pet Cemetery, probably one of the most famous, uh, that and Near Dark, as far as like women directing horror films, probably one of the most famous ones. Pet Cemetery, directed by Mary Lambert, who is still directing horror movies. She did uh, Pet Cemetery 2 in 92. She did Urban Legends Bloody Mary in 2005. The Attic in 2007. Uh, she ended up doing Mega Python versus Gatoroid in 2011. But uh, definitely Pet Cemetery, an all-time classic. One of the most unnerving films of its time. Still, still unnerving today. Um, 1990, we had Marina Sargento step in with Mirror, Mirror. And in 91, we finally had a woman come in with one of the big... Uh, franchises, Rachel Talele, who also did Ghost in the Machine in 1991, did Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare in 1991 as well. We also started seeing some Japanese women stepping in. We had Echo Echo Azarak, Wizard of Darkness by Shimako Sato in 1995 and the, and the sequel in 96. And then Oregon, which I'm, I'm set to watch in the next week uh, by Kei Fujiwara in 1996. And she also did Id in 2006. Uh, I'm, I'm bracing myself for that one. And by the end of the 90s, uh, we started seeing women take over franchises that before were very male-dominated. Carrie 2, The Rage, uh, was, in 1999, was directed by Kat Shea. The remake in 2013 was by Kimberly Pierce. Uh, Ravenous, which is an awesome movie from 1999 with Antonia Bird. And in 2000, American Psycho, Mary Heron, directing one of the most aggressive horror movies of the time. Still holds up that movie. Uh, and then the, the movie that I kind of feel is, is the movie that really says from now on horror is going to be a woman's genre. That is Trouble Every Day in 2001 by Claire Denis. It, that is one of the most gnarly movies you could, you could watch. And it's a movie that basically says there are no boundaries that women can't talk about in horror. It's phenomenal. Definitely worth checking out. Um, and then things continued with In My Skin by Marina Devan, which is another great movie in that, in that, uh, uh, in that line. Jennifer's... I'm just, now I'm cherry-picking because so many started coming out. There's an explosion at this point in the 2000s uh, of great horror movies directed by women. I'm, I'm cherry-picking. Uh, Jennifer's Body is, the, uh, is where we saw Karen Kusama in 2009. Written by Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno, and Kusama would end up going uh, on to direct The Invitation, which is an awesome movie in 2015. Uh, American Mary is a great one in 2012 from Jen Soska. Kiss of the Damned is a really beautiful movie. Not a, it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie, but it's it's really it's worth a look because it's really cool looking. By uh, Zan Cassavetes. Uh, Zan is actually short for Alexandra, and it's John Cassavetes' daughter directed this movie. So Kiss of the Damned from 2012 is definitely worth a look. And then we start getting to the modern classics. Babadook in 2014 by Jennifer Kent. Um, I'm looking forward to watching this one this year. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night from 2014 by Anna Lily Amarpour. I have not watched that one yet. It's going to be one of the ones I watched this year. I'm very much looking forward to that. She also directed The Bad Batch in 2016. 
Fatal Frame, which is an, a great adaptation of the video game by Mario Sato in 2014. The Voices, which I watched, I think, last year or the year before, from 2015 by Marjane Satrapi. Uh, Raw, the debut of Julia Ducourneau, who is one of the, I think, the great modern voices in horror from 2016. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching Titan for this year as well. That's, that's coming up next week, just to, just to look out for Titan, because I'm looking out for it as well. It's supposed to be bananas. Uh, Revenge by Coralie Forgot from 2017, one of the best movies you can watch on Shudder. And then we start getting into uh, uh, X, we got XX from 2017, which is an anthology film. You have Roxanne Benjamin, Sofia Carrillo, Karen Kusama shows up again, Annie Clark, Jovanka Vukovic. Uh, it's a fun movie worth a watch. Tigers Are Not Afraid. From La I watched that last year by Issa Lopez. Uh, just a gut punch of a movie. Really worth watching from 2017. Um, at this point in the 20s, it, it's so pervasive. We had 15 major movies by women in the horror genre in 2020. And there are seven plus so far in 2021, including the remake of Candyman by Nia DaCosta, probably one of the biggest releases in horror this year. Um, but keep in mind, one of the reasons why there's that juxtaposition of 15 and 7 is uh, pandemic. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's just growing and growing. Where, where I couldn't find 15 movies in the first two decades there, 15 movies in the last year alone. So that's a, that's a pretty monstrous list of where to start if you'd like to get a better handle on women in the horror genre. And that's just directors. There are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other creatives in the medium, from writers to producers and so forth. But for right now, this is a good place to start and show support. But unfortunately, this is where I finish, at least until the next episode. So I will be back next week with movies 15 through 21, and some of them I already have plans to be some fresh new releases. I've told you about a couple of them, Titan, for example. I'm very excited. Uh, but in the meantime, check me out on Twitter, at SkinlessWonder. And on Instagram, at Sir Ian Dangerous. And if you want to see thumbnails of all those movies, check out Instagram. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. You know all of the social media deals. And in the meantime, we will see you next time right here on Horror.